Perfecto. Um, yeah, I, I was doing the, the math again. It's, uh, we started this journey through the book of Acts 110 weeks ago. Um, we actually, lesson five today, lesson six next week, and then that, that's going to kind of be it. We're going to move into some other things and kind of prepare our hearts to go somewhere else. And it's, it's been a really kind of incredible journey for me because I know for a lot of you, as we've gone through this text, you've been able to, to be with us the whole time. Several of us, maybe you came in in the middle, and a few of you may be here for the first time, and you kind of don't really know anything. But for me, from start to finish, uh, being able to read and study and write through this entire book has been really, really powerful. And so when we got to the end, I just felt like there were some things left on the table, some things that we needed to return to and address, some bigger lessons that I wanted to just sort of pull out and leave hanging there. And so we came up with six of them. Well, nine of them really, but I named them six so it felt a little bit more doable and then gave one three parts. So the idea was simply that this first lesson, the idea that we are called as a sent people and as followers of Christ, we don't exist to sit here and maintain our own status quo and feel really good about our life as a church. But instead, we are called to be sent out there into the cracks and crevices of culture to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not simply as a church, big C, but as individuals sent into the world. We talked about lesson two, how we have been promised and given the Holy Spirit, that we aren't sent as lone rangers sort of out there to go and just kind of do what we want, but, but that God promised to send and give the Holy Spirit, and that we have been given this incredible gift that dwells within us, that not only convicts our heart, but empowers our mission in the world, which is the mission to be sent out there. We talked about lesson three, how as followers of Christ, we are called to a radically altered worldview, that we see the world differently, that because we know Jesus, he changes the way that we see the world, and it's got three parts to it. It's got how we see um, ourselves, our own heartbeats, our own lives, our own worth, how we see other people, the value that Jesus saw in people and who we spent time with, and even how we see things, stuff. And we talked about how our worldview should change because we're Christ followers. And then Brandon, last week, let, we got into lesson four. We talked about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is literally for everyone. Perhaps the great news of the great news, right, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. It's for me that God did what we could not do for ourselves. And today we're going to be lesson six, and then next week will be lesson seven, and then that's it, and then we're done and we're moving on. But lesson six today is an interesting one because it is taking the whole middle section of the book of Acts and pouring it into one word. So Acts is in three big sections, right? The first, uh, one through 12, is really about the birth of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and takes us all the way through the persecution that Herod kind of began. So it's the sort of birth and movement and sending of the church. The middle section of the book of Acts covers the three missionary journeys of Paul and his companions. So chapter 12 through about 21, uh, 20 really, covers all the missionary journeys, three missionary journeys that cover some 12 years and over 10,000 miles. And it's all the stories and uh, victories and struggles and hardships and triumphs and all those things along the way, right? And the last part of the book of Acts records Paul's return to Jerusalem and all the struggles that he faced there and then his subsequent sailing up to Rome and ultimately finding himself awaiting uh, trial for Caesar. So those three sections. Well, we're looking at the middle section today. And our, our kind of lessons that we're learning from the book of Acts aren't really using Acts as our text. We're going to actually be in the book of John chapter 12. But they're using Acts as our foundational framework. And we're using the middle section today to talk about the idea of obedience. And the lesson is this, that as followers of Christ, 
Obedience is the greatest privilege. That as followers of Christ, obedience is the greatest privilege. Now, obedience is a word that's used all through the New Testament, all through Scripture, actually, about saying yes to God. And ultimately, what that boils down to, us saying yes to the things that God is calling us to. But obedience is an interesting kind of word when you look at it in the context of Scripture because we see obedience as sort of this duty that we have to do. Like, God has called us to do that. I have to do it even if I don't like it. It's sort of my Christian duty. God calls me to give 10%, so I begrudgingly give four, right? Or God calls me to go to Africa, so instead of doing that, I begrudgingly kind of decide I'm going to sponsor a compassion child. Like obedience is our negotiation with God to not quite do what he's calling us to do, but feel better about the fact that we're doing some of it, right? At least for the majority of us, myself deeply included in that category. Because we see obedience as something that we have to do. But the truth is, if you look at what's unfolding in Acts and how Paul has had his life trajectory completely changed and his companions have given up everything to follow Jesus, they never see it as a duty. Everything in their life, and this goes all throughout Scripture, they see it as a privilege. They understand who God is, what he did for them, and then therefore obedience becomes a joy. It becomes what I get to do. See, every one of us wants God to give us something new and great. But very few of us want to be obedient to the things that he is already calling us to. Because those things are what's complicated and painful and nuanced and difficult. So we wait for God to say, send me this or do me this. And then we argue with it until it works into our strategy for our own lives and our own desires and our own dreams. But obedience is the privilege of being able to say yes to the God that gave life at every corner and at every turn. It's a privilege. Now hear me say this, and we're going to return to this thought at the very end, all right? Your growth and maturity in Christ is directly connected to your ability to obediently live the things that God has already called you to. Your growth and maturity in Christ is directly connected to your, obe- your ability to obediently live the things that God is already calling you to. What that means is that what God has convicted you of and put on your heart, what God has called you to get rid of in your mind or in your action, what God is pushing you toward, your maturity is your ability to, obedient, to be obedient to those things. Not waiting on the next big thing, but if God is calling you to rid your life of this sinful behavior, this attitude, this thought, this fear, and you continue to not do it, then why would we expect maturity and growth to come when God is calling us to these things obediently? Because we approach obedience begrudgingly. Because we don't see it as a privilege and a joy. And so what we're going to see today as we look at the book of John is literally how we are called, right, to give up our own lives and obediently find joy in saying yes to Jesus. I found myself in a conversation. I think I actually told this quite a few years ago for those who have been around that long. Um, I found myself in this conversation with a guy a couple of years ago, and we were talking about death. Actually, we were talking about what we would die for. So it wasn't really about death. It was, what would you die for? And he kind of posed the question in a random conversation I was having. And, and we started talking about things we would die for. Would you die for your children, right, to save their lives? Would you die for someone you cared about? Would you, would you die for you know, this cause or this thing? Would you die to come up with a cure for diabetes or a cure for cancer? Or what would you die for? 
And there's probably as many different, you know, answers as there are people in this room. We all have something. For some of us, we die for all those things. For some of us, we die for none of those things. For some of us, you know, we lose our own life for save somebody else. I mean, who knows? It, it was an interesting just kind of random conversation. But I, we kind of got to talking about what we say we would die for and what we would actually die for. Because those are two very different things, right? Like what I would say it out loud. But when I'm presented with the actual situation, would I really go through with it? And as we were leaving, and as we were kind of done with this, he said, I think the ultimate moral question, right, revolves around the idea of religion. Would you die for what you believe in a religious context? And this guy was not necessarily a believer. We were just chatting. And he said, morally, would you die for your belief system, right? So there wasn't an exchange to be made for a human being. There wasn't an exchange to be made for uh, scientific discovery. It was, would you die for the things that you believed? And I think most of us in here would want to say, well, sure. But as I started really thinking about it, I started thinking that the question was actually kind of a messed up question. It's a question a lot of us would think, but there's not, that question's not really posed that way in Scripture. It's actually posed differently in Scripture. That as followers of Christ... It's not so much what we would die for, but what we're willing to die to. Very different question. Because it doesn't deal in the hypothetical situation where there's a car barreling down here and you're going to dive in front of a child, right? And it doesn't deal with the question was, if somebody put a gun to my head and walked in this room right now and said, Trev Prater, will you die for Jesus? Right? It's a question that Jesus actually asks his followers all the time. Are you willing to? What are you willing to die to? And the reason he asked that question is because the ultimate call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to come and die to yourself. And what we're going to see today in John chapter 12 is that this is the ultimate question that you and I have to deal with. Am I willing as a follower of Christ to die to me, to my own wants, my own desires, my own selfish way of thinking and living, the things that I long for, die to all those things for the sake and glory of Jesus. And it's an interesting way to look at it. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 12. We're going to be in verse 20 through 27 as we kind of explore this idea of dying to ourself and what it means to truly serve Jesus. And we're going to find the privilege of obedience in there um, somewhere. So if you've got that, go ahead and turn John chapter 12. Now, keep in mind, the back channel is sort of Paul's heartbeat in these missionary journeys. As Brandon and I were talking today, we were really talking about there's probably no greater kind of paradox in Scripture that's laid out than Paul, the Pharisee that's approaching the highest levels of religious power, being called by the Lord to not just lay it all down, but to move in a complete opposite direction of all that the world was promising him from power and money and purpose and fame and whatever to not just give it up but to lose everything to be ridiculed mocked beaten spit upon and ultimately die alone right I mean it's the ultimate kind of paradox if you will and and Paul throughout those journeys considers it nothing but a privilege to be able to suffer and follow the name of Christ, which is fascinating to me. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to explore John 12, and we're going to find some stuff in those verses that I think is, is pretty powerful. So let's take a moment, let's pray together. 
God, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and open your word. I thank you that it's timeless and that it's powerful. But more than anything, God, I thank you that it is true, that your word is true. It is unrelenting and it is unfailing. God, it speaks to every corner of our hearts and our minds and our lives. It is your word, God. You tell us that it is your theopunestos, that it is the very breath of God. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would take that seriously, that we are having an encounter with God and we have an encounter with your word. So take a moment right where you sit and just ask the Lord to teach you something. I don't know what that is. I don't know what God wants to teach you this morning, but ask him to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you in front of you or behind you, even if you don't know them. We do, I do this each week. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Be a, be a church that is gathered here to see other people meet the Lord. Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning, our worship, time in the word. God, we ask that you would teach our hearts and that, God, we would come face to face with Jesus. We ask this in his risen and perfect and holy name. Amen. <clears throat> so John 12 is at the end of Jesus' life. <clears throat> he has already come riding back into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He is prepared for the end of his life. He knows what is coming. His soul, as he will tell us, Jesus will tell us in these verses, is troubled. He knows what's unfolding before him, that in a matter of days, he is going to be abandoned by the very people that he has come to love and trust and walk with, that he is going to be betrayed by them and abandoned by them. He is going to be handed over. He knows the death that waits him, but he also knows the glory that will come from it. And so he begins to speak very plainly to his disciples, knowing that he only has a few days left in their presence in this form. And so he begins to speak very clearly to them. And so in John 12, 20, Jesus is standing there in the middle of a crowd, all right? And there are some Greeks that come up to Philip and to Andrew, and they have a request, and they say, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn went to Jesus. So here are Philip and Andrew going to Jesus saying, Jesus, there are some people here that would like to talk with you, which everybody wanted to see Jesus. This is Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now it's a really interesting scenario because Philip and Andrew come to Jesus with a request that there are some Greeks, some people out here that just want to talk to him which is not an uncommon thing. And they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, there are some people here that would like to speak with you. And we expect a response from Jesus where Jesus says, all right, bring them in or tell them to wait or I'm on my way or okay. But Jesus does something really odd. He almost ignores their request completely. Doesn't even mention it. And he begins to talk about something else. 
He ignores the request and says, a time has come or the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, remains only a single seed. And he goes into this sort of teaching on death and life and losing your life and hating your life and does something completely away from whatever it was that Philip and Andrew were asking him. And there's a really important principle at play because Jesus is not mixing words any longer with his disciples. He is talking very clearly and very plain about what is about to unfold. The time, the hour is near and Jesus knows what is coming. And he looks at them, right, as they are waiting for him to respond about going and spending time with these Greeks. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he begins to talk to them about this principle of life that comes from death. So the principle at play here is life comes from death. And he's going to make both a claim and he's going to make a call in these two verses. And the claim he makes under that principle is this, that life will come from my death. And he uses this imagery, a kernel of wheat, a kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. Unless it dies, it remains only a single seed. It's a very, you can see it very clearly. If a seed stays alive, it just produces whatever. It's just a seed. But in order for a seed to produce a plant, to produce a crop, to produce a harvest, it has to die and literally be buried and come up from that death. Jesus is talking very plainly about what is about to transpire with himself, that I must die, literally be buried, and be raised from that death in order to produce life. He is talking clearly to the disciples to prepare them for about what is about to unfold, that death brings about life, and more importantly, his death brings life. See, Jesus knew that the only way to eternal God was through his death. He knew what was coming. And he makes this claim about himself, that my death will be the only way to life. Okay? In that verse, he also makes a call to these very followers of Christ. And listen to what he says. He says this, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Luke and Matthew record it as the man who wants to save his life in this world will lose it. But he who loses his life in this world will save it. Now, Jesus isn't talking about self-hatred. He's not saying you've got to hate yourself. He's actually talking about the opposite of love, that if we love this world and love our life in this world, right, we get to keep the world. But if we, the opposite of love, if we hate our life in this world, comparatively speaking, then we will save it. We will keep it. And what Jesus is doing is he's essentially setting this up, that life comes from your death as well. So life comes from my death, true abundant life, my death and resurrection. But true life in me will will come from you not engaging and loving this world. In other words, true life will come from your death to self. And what Jesus is getting at is this. I am offering eternal life through my death and resurrection, but you have got to be willing to die to yourself to have true life in me. 
You've got to be willing to let go of everything that your heart desires for you, your glory, your attention, your fame, your stuff, dying to yourself, hating your life in this world because true life in me will come when you die to you. The claim and the promise is wrapped up in there. I am going to die so that you might have abundant life and true life in me and eternal life. But that life only comes when we're willing to die to ourself. Because the core of the gospel is death to self. It is saying, Jesus, I give up me. I give up all of my wants and my desires and my things because I want you. I want your glory. So that principle begs a couple of questions, but it begs this one first. Am I willing to die to myself? Back to that original conversation I was having with that guy. What am I willing to die to? Well, Jesus' call in question is, are you willing to die to yourself? And it's an incredibly complicated and nuanced question. Because there are certain things that I'm willing to die to, absolutely. But there are certain things that I will not let go of. And there are certain things that God has been calling me to, whispering to my heart for 25 years to let go of, turn loose of, quit believing that I ignore and I hang on to with everything I have because I'm comfortable in those places. But the gospel call is death to me. It's what Paul walked away from with his entire life. Death to everything he thought was right for him and yes to a God who had given him true real life. See, death to self is not what we have to do. It's what we get to do because of what Jesus did for us. Paul recognized that his going on these missionary journeys, his surrendering his political fame and all the religious kind of power he had coming was a joy because of the life he had in Jesus. See, you and I fight God because we think what we want is better. Jesus wants to give you everything in him. Peace and rest and freedom. And instead we fight him because we'd rather live in anxiety and worry and fear. Are you willing to die to yourself? It's the first real question of obedience, of saying yes to the Lord. Am I willing to let go of all the things that I'm clinging so tightly to. And some of those things are physical. Some of them are just ideas. Some of them are the fear of being alone or not having enough money or not being able to do this. Am I willing to release those things that I'm grasping so tightly to? It's the first movement in obedience. It's actually the first movement in freedom. Am I willing to die to me? As a follower of Christ, if you come to grips with the fact that this is the call of the gospel, it actually begs a second question, and Jesus puts it right in here when he's looking at his disciples. He says this. He says, once you've kind of got to the place where you want to lose your life, you will actually save it. When you die to yourself, it's going to bring about a second question. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So when we come to this place of saying, okay, Jesus, you get all of me. 
Like I'm letting go of my fears. I'm letting go of that behavior. I am letting go of my desires. I'm letting go of that sort of perfect image that I have thrown up around myself that I want the entire world to think is truly me. I'm cutting those things out. I'm saying yes to you. God, you get me. And then Jesus says, will you serve me? Because the second part of obedience after death to self is, will you serve me? Will you follow me? And our response to that question, if I were to ask every single one of you, stand right in front of you and say, will you serve Jesus? Every one of us would say yes, because we've defined service ourselves. We've labeled it. Yeah, I'm going to come up here on a Sunday morning and I'm going to make coffee. I'll serve the Lord, right? Or I'll give when we have to give kind of next month. We start talking about stewardship. I'll make sure that I give so I can serve Jesus that way. Or, or I've got a job and, and I can kind of give a little bit of my time and serve the church. Of course, I'll serve Jesus because we get to define the term. But something really interesting happens as Jesus talks about serving him. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. All of a sudden, things get a little bit more interesting. Because if we're going to serve Jesus, we have to follow him, and we will be where he is. See, our definitions of service don't fit into those categories. Our definitions of service mean, hey, I'm going to clean the church once a month, or I'm going to serve coffee. Those things are fine and great, and we need them. But that's not truly what Jesus is saying here. Because death to self leads me to a desire to serve him. And serving him means I lay down my definitions and I go where he is. And where is Jesus? You can see that question coming from a mile away. And you can spend weeks unpacking this, right? But where was Jesus emotionally? Jesus was deeply invested in people. He was deeply invested emotionally and relationally in people. He spent time with people that most of us would never spend time with. He cared about the people that the world threw out. He was deeply invested in people, and not just the outcasts. Brandon stood up here last week and talked about Nicodemus, one of the Pharisaical, Pharisaical leaders, and he was deeply invested in Nicodemus. Jesus was deeply invested with people in people, and not just people that were easy to invest in. He was relationally involved in the hearts and lives of people, especially those ones that aren't easily invested in. So where was Jesus physically? Well, Jesus went to the places that you and I won't go to. He went to the places the religious world would never step foot in. He touched people that the world wouldn't touch. He walked right through Samaria when religious elite would walk 14 miles out of the way so they didn't put one toe in its dirt. He sit in the middle of prostitutes, tax collectors, addicts, and broken people. Right in the middle of them even when it cost him every ounce of his standing in society. Jesus went places that the world wouldn't go. Most of our churches won't go places where Jesus went. But we'll invite people to come here. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to serve him. We're going to follow him. And he says, where I am, my servant will be. Do you think that Jesus, this is where Jesus would be? Sitting in here? Every day of the week, no one thinks that. 
but we become really comfortable. Where was Jesus spiritually? And he was obedient to the Father to the core. Listen to this verse. And tell me you don't feel some of this emotion that Jesus says. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. Look at verse 27. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows what is unfolding. He knows what the next few days hold. He knows that everybody in his life will run and abandon him. He knows that he will be handed over by the creation that he breathed life into. And they will betray him. And they will beat him. And they will crucify him. And they will kill him. And he says, my heart is troubled. He looks right at Philip and Andrew and says, my heart is breaking, is torn. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this? Like, God, take this away from me. He said, no. It was for this very moment that I am. So, Father, be glorified. See, most of us, we avoid inconvenience at all costs. God calls to something, and we'll spend six years debating whether or not it was God. We'll spend five months asking people to pray for us, even though we know in our heart of hearts that God is calling us to whatever that is. And Jesus, in the blink of an eye, goes, no, even if I would rather not walk through what I'm about to walk through, I choose obedience. Why? Because it's why I am. As I was reading through this, man, I just so deeply long in my heart to love the Lord this much. But I can't say I do. Because I argue and I fight over the same things that God is calling me to. Let go of, release, turn loose, forgive, whatever it is, cut it loose. And God is calling me to it. And I fight him on it, and I fight him on it, and I fight him on it, and I wonder why my heart is restless. Because I don't see obedience as a privilege. I see it as a wrestling match with God where I know I'm going to lose, but I just keep fighting. Obedience is a privilege. It's a privilege when we realize what God has done for us. That my broken, desperate, bruised, and banged up heart has been rescued by the King of Kings, has been rescued by the God that gives life, that I did nothing on my own, that in all of my sin and desperation and brokenness, God said, I love you so much that he rescued me, saved me under none of my doing. Obedience should flow from that ridiculous place of joy. And if I truly believed that that's what God did for me, then obedience becomes a privilege like it was for Paul. See, Paul realized what Jesus had saved him from. And every moment from his, of his life from that moment on was a moment of great privilege. I don't care where it leads me because I know what you've saved me from. Most of us need to remember what God has saved us from. Death 
and brokenness and sin and heartache and sadness and foreverness away from him. No doing of your own. The God of the universe through Jesus Christ in a relationship with him saves us and redeems us. And every moment in our life from that point on becomes a moment of joy. Obedience is joy. As hard as it is, it's joy. Why? Because I get to do this. It's a privilege. Your maturity and growth in Christ is directly connected to your ability to obediently live what he has already called you to, to obediently live the truth you already know. Most of us aren't sitting here waiting for God to give us giant revelation. We're not waiting on God to say, change careers or quit your job or do whatever. We already know what God is calling us to cut loose of and let go of and move past. But most of us are just petrified to do it. Our maturity is hinging on our ability to obediently live the truth that God has already placed in our heart. What is it that God is pressing on you? And what do you need to cut loose of? Forgive, release, turn over, quit believing. Drop, walk away from, and never look at again. That's obedience. And it is a privilege to say yes to the God who gave you and gave me life. Let's pray together. God, you are incredible. And you are the God who knits life. You are the God who holds all things together. You are the God, Father, who rescued us through the person of Jesus Christ through no doing of our own. For the follower of Christ, obedience is the greatest privilege. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that we would take seriously the call that you've put on our hearts. Whatever that is, to let go of, to turn loose of, to be free from, God, that we would find joy in that moment. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would move in us, that you would stir us, that you would draw us into your presence, and that you would let us find joy, joy, deep, real joy in the fact that we get to say yes to you and that you will never leave us nor forsake us because you are good. So Lord, hear our cry as we close our time in worship. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our kind of response to the word uh, through song. We do have folks in the back that would love to take a few moments and pray for you. If you'd like to have someone just pray over you or with you, go back there and visit with Ryan Alley. Let them pray for you. But let's close our time by responding to God um, through worship. Thank you.